Hey there, my name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders here at Grace City. And on, on Sunday we had just a few recording hitches, uh, which meant we, we missed getting the Bible reading at the beginning of the preach. So I'm, I'm just going to do that now. And then it'll, it'll suddenly seem like there's 80 people in the room. So uh, we've been in the book of Mark for a while. Jesus has been uh, making all sorts of claims about who he is and why he has come. And in Mark chapter 13, which I'm just about to read, Jesus describes what it is like. What will it be like? What can the person who believes in the claims of Jesus, what, what can they expect life to be like? So this is Mark chapter 13 from verse 1. And as he, as Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes In various places there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved." Jesus here sums up what the believer, what the Christian can expect. And perhaps for some of us, what, what Jesus says here is, is a little bit surprising because it's not really very pretty. Okay, well, as, as they are leaving the temple, that temple that Rich was just describing as he was doing the offering, this incredible building, there's, there is a disciple, we don't know which one, but this disciple is saying, wow, look at this, look at the architecture, the stones there are so big, isn't this quite a marvelous place, Jesus? And Jesus says, you know what, it's all coming to an end. There won't be left one stone on top of the other. And that is exactly... What happens, if you know that 40 years after Jesus says this, there's this rebellion against the Romans, and then the Romans do what the Romans always did, which is they came in and they raised the place to the ground, they destroyed Jerusalem, and they dest- destroyed the temple. What Jesus says here is exactly what happens, and I'm sure the disciples were quite surprised with this re- revelation that this is what is going to happen. So after leaving the temple, they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, tell us, where... When is this going to happen? What are the signs? What are the things that we should look for so that we know that this is going to happen? And 
Jesus first, he, he sets this backdrop, this backdrop, right, of, okay, there's going to be wars, and there's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be famines. There's going to be earthquakes. You know what? There are going to be people who go around, and they're going to be pretending that they are me, and they're going to say, I am Jesus. I am the Messiah. I am the chosen one, and they're going to lead many people astray. And then Jesus zooms in. Jesus starts to talk about what it's like for those who choose to follow him while all this is going on. And what is it that he mentions? What is it that he says? He talks about being delivered over to councils and dragged before governors and kings, put on trial. He talks about being beaten. He talks about betrayal and a very personal kind of betrayal of of, uh, children turning against fathers and brothers against sisters. And he even talks about death. Goodness, Jesus' description of the life for the Christian, I mean, he sums it up when he says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. That is not a popular Bible verse, is it? Do you have a a coffee mug with a Bible verse on it? It's not this one. I guarantee that. This this verse is not going to be printed on any Christian merchandising. Have you ever... You ever see one of those Christian posters, uh, which always have, they have a Bible verse on them. That's how they're Christian, and they always have have like a sunset on it. And then, or, or what's better than a sunset? Picture of a cat. What's better than a picture of a cat? Picture of a kitten. So you, you always have like a picture of a kitten, and then you know a Bible verse. You pray, praise the Lord, written there. You never see a poster with a picture of a kitten. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. <laughs> You just don't see that poster. I'm looking forward to all the people who are going to Photoshop that poster and send it to me. I'm looking forward to that. I mean, that, you will be hated by all. I mean, why? Why? That's what I want to know. Why does Jesus say these things? Why does he go to these lengths to make clear that the Christian life is, is difficult? Why does Jesus sit the disciples down and tell him this? Well, this is what I think. This is why I think he does this. Isn't it better to know that something bad is going to happen, that some trouble is coming before it does, before it happens? I, I think that's the case, but you may be less convinced. So let me, let me, let me tell you this story. Okay? I, I grew up in England. I grew up in a, a place called Eastbourne. It's near Brighton, very south coast uh, against the, the, the channel uh, of, of England. And uh, when I was 16, I was working on the seafront. Okay, it was like my first job, retail job. And I, at lunchtime, I would go down and sit on the beach and eat my lunch because it was quite nice. Now, I need to pause and just explain something to you Canadians in the room because this story is mainly about uh, seagulls. And I've seen, I've seen the things that you call seagulls. And they are, they're, quite, they're kind of small and cute. And that is not what I mean when I'm talking about seagulls. No, the seagulls in these old Victorian uh, English seaside towns, they are, they are vicious. <laughs> They are aggressive. I have seen small children holding food, being attacked by loads of birds. There was one occasion when I was sat down eating my lunch on the beach when a a seagull flew up to peck the food out of my mouth. And in a kind of a defensive maneuver or panic, one of the two, I just punched the seagull in its face. (laughs) Just clocked it around the beak. 
and I've never felt so alive. <laughs> the seagull was fine, unfortunately. <laughs> there was this one time I'm sat down on the beach and I'm eating my lunch, and anyone from Eastbourne, anyone from Brighton knows you eat it kind of protected. You just do it automatically. You don't even think about it. But I see these. Uh, these people come and they sit down on this, uh, this long stone bench that's on the, um, the, along the seafront. And they're, they're elderly people. There's this elderly gentleman and three elderly women. And it is clear that they are here uh, visiting. They, they're not from Eastbourne. They don't, you know, they're, they're having a lovely day. They're, they're coming to, the weather is perfect. The sun is shining. What could possibly go wrong? Did I overcook it on the foreshadowing? Do I still need to tell the story? I'll tell the story. I'll tell the story because this is the best thing I've ever seen and I think ever will see in my entire life. Okay, so I, there's this, this, this elderly pensioner. He looks very nice. He's having a nice time. He takes out his sandwich and he starts to unwrap. And immediately, whoomph, a seagull, like before, before he even finishes the final unwrapping, Seagull flies down, takes the whole thing and lands and starts to eat it. And I don't know what you're expecting his reaction to me. I'll tell you what, I was, I was looking, I was watching this. I think, oh, this is, I've seen this happen a million times. It's happened to me a few times. I'm watching, and he looks like this, this pleasant man. So I'm thinking, oh, he's going to, his response is going to be one of kind of good-humored, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> the seagull oh, has t- taken my sandwich. Oh, oh, I'll just have another one. <laughs> right, that's, that's what I'm expecting. That was not the response that, ha- that happened. This, he's looking at where the sandwich used to be. He's looking at where the sandwich is. And he's looking backwards and forwards. After a few moments of just... He emits this guttural roar of anger and outrage. And he snatches up his walking stick and he leaps to his feet. And he goes to the seagull to deal the death blow. And some of you are thinking, Matt, this is a funny story. You're making this up. I'm not. Some of you are thinking, oh, but you're exaggerating for comic effect. This is the best thing I've ever seen. This actually, actually happened. And so what happened? The two women to his left, also outraged, shocked. They start to sort of screech and howl in, in rage. And they go forward to the pebbled beach and start picking up stones. I promise you this is true. And start to try and stone the bird to death. And the last of the women sat there is just... She doesn't have, the other three have probably got it covered. She's just, she's just going, why? <laughs> just, oh, why has this happened? Oh, the seagulls, what is, what is this? And so I'm watching this, and I'm, I'm just taken aback. Such anger, such outrage, such indignation. If only they had known, if only they had known, if only someone had told them that by visiting Eastbourne on that fateful day that they would be hated by all seagulls. <laughs> See, I, I think the reason there was such an overblown and kind of comically overblown reaction to such an attack is because they didn't know it was coming. No one had taken them aside beforehand. Oh, you're going to Eastbourne? You need to know about these collections of feathers and hatred that they have there. They need, they need to know about these. You need to know about the grotesque monsters that await you. 
Because, I mean, none of you are ever going to go to Eastbourne, but if you did and you were to find yourself in a nightmare bird-based scenario, I think you would probably, having listened very carefully to this story, probably respond better than those older people did that day. I think it is better to know that something bad is going to happen, that some, some trouble is coming before it comes. This is why Jesus sits his disciples down, because when the trouble comes, not if, not if, but when, he, he wants his disciples to be ready. He wants his followers to be prepared, because if you're not ready, it gets so much harder. Listen, if you think the Christian life is the equivalent of a sunny holiday, a nice day out, when the attack comes, when the opposition arises, it will seem like it's come out of nowhere. And if it seems like it comes out of nowhere, you'll probably end up deeply shaken, kind of knocked to the floor, kind of derailed in a sense. But if you know that it's coming, when the, when the opposition comes knocking, you can say, aha, I've been expecting you. And you won't absolutely lose it. You won't be shaken to your core. You're able to say, yes, this is painful. Yes, this is unpleasant. Yeah, it, it, it hurts. But you won't fall into anger. You won't fall into bitterness. You won't become cynical or defensive or, or fearful or even give up on your faith. Just go, nope, too hard. I'm done with this. You know, there's, there's one moment actually for me when I was working down on the on Eastbourne Seafront when I was, it was actually my first day. And it was the first day, it was a Monday that I was in, you know, oh, that's my, my first kind of retail job. I'm 16 and I'm put with this, um, my, my co-worker, this young lady, a couple of years older than me called Charlotte. And, you know, I've never met this person. It's like, oh, hello. You know, when you kind of have to do the, the small talk, you know, we're working together, but we need to kind of get to know one another. And so she asks, classic opening question, oh, what did you, it's a Monday, what did you get up to over the weekend? And I go, well, a few things. You know, I did, did some schoolwork on Saturday, and I saw some friends Saturday evening, and then on, on Sunday I went to church. And I didn't, I didn't even finish the rest of my story because... Charlotte just erupts with, you went to church? I hate God. I hate church. Religion is a scam. It's all about control. It's all about oppression. You just want to oppress me. And she just continues very angrily, very loudly. It probably was only for like two or three minutes. It felt a lot longer. I'm just like, I was just going to have a nice, nice time getting to know someone I wasn't expecting. And my response, if I'm, if I'm honest, my response, there are things, maybe not on the surface, I hope not on the surface, but inside that were actually quite similar to those four elderly people attacked by a seagull. There was this attitude inside kind of, when I went away of, oh, this shouldn't happen to me. Oh, no, freedom of religion. This is, I, I should be respected. I sh- this, this shouldn't happen to me. But where do I, where do we, where do we, when we find ourselves in this sort of situation as believers, where, where do we get that idea from? It's not from Jesus in Mark chapter 13. No, he's, he's pretty clear. 
Our response shouldn't be one of anger, bitterness, defensiveness, or fear. Because if we take Jesus' words here to heart, we shouldn't be surprised. See, sometimes we can encounter this sort of trouble, and maybe we're not surprised, but maybe we just think, oh dear, oh no, this is happening, and I must have done something wrong. I must have, God must be very displeased with me, or maybe I've stepped out of God's will. That sounds very, sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? Oh, I stepped out of God's will. Well, you need to know that that's not what Jesus says here. What does he say in verse 7? He says, this must take place. This must take place. And then again in verse 10, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. These things must happen because the gospel must be proclaimed. To proclaim the gospel, what, what Jesus has done, when Jesus died on a cross, when he was buried, and then when he rose again, to proclaim that, to say, people, you must know this, you must see this, you must hear this, and give these people, the, the people who are in this city and haven't had the chance yet to respond to this message, well, if we give them that option, maybe they might respond badly. Maybe they might not respond, their response might not, might not be one that is very positive. God's church must be built, will be built. People will be saved into his family. And Jesus says that in order for that to happen, in order for God's plan on earth to go forward, difficulty has to, for a time, coexist with the mission. Those two things must be together. It's got to happen that way. Friends, we must not imagine that when things get messy and things get tricky, and this sort of thing happens that God isn't involved. We mustn't think that this is not his plan. Actually, when you encounter this, it, it may be not because you've stepped outside of his will or you're doing something that God is displeased with. It, it might actually be because you are following him faithfully. That's why. Indeed, God is, God is so gracious He's so gracious that he does not let these moments of opposition go to waste. James, the, the, the brother of Jesus, he, he says this, he writes this. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says there is a reason to celebrate. Now, what could that possibly be? What could that possibly be? Because when faith is tested, it gets strengthened. And that strengthening means you end up as a more well-rounded disciple. A believer who has convictions, a believer with substance. That's what happens. You, you can say, you know what, I have tasted and I have seen, I have experienced that God is good even when things aren't going my way. Some of us, we're not quite, we're not quite living here yet. We're not going, yes, counting it all joy when there's trouble. Yeah, come on. We're, some of us, we're not there yet. Some days I am, some days I'm not. It's okay. We're, we're all on a... On a, on a journey with this, Jesus wants his church to be steadfast. 
enduring, lasting. That's what we want as a church here in Ottawa. We want to be around for a long time. We want to be around for And there's a danger here, right? Because we are, in many ways, a brand new church in Ottawa, in comfortable Canada. We don't actually know very much of this difficulty, this sort of persecution. Not really. You know, if you've been around Grace City Church for a little while, you, you will have heard we, we're a church that is connected to a bunch of other churches, mainly to this church in Brighton in England, but through them to loads of churches all around the world. And some of them are in very difficult places, in Istanbul, in the underground house church in China. You know what? They have a far more difficult time being believers than we do. My point is not, oh, we're a bit useless, aren't we? We should be more like them. But actually, rather, that when this trouble comes for us, God will use it for our good. Because if you look, what happens if you look at those churches in places where there is a lot of opposition? Well, we find believers who are very serious about God, who deeply love the word, who love the church. And that should encourage us. It really should, because those believers in those other places where things are harder are recipients of the very same grace that you and I have been. You know, some of us, we, we live or die by what other, others think of us. I spent a lot of my life battling that, living with that. Some of us live or die by what others think of us. Someone gives us the impression that they look down on us and we crumble inside. You see, this opposition that Jesus talks about, you know, there's, there's actually no better way, I've found, personally, for that idol of what other people think of me to be killed than to have a bit of this opposition, to experience a little bit of that hardship. Let me give you some more good news, okay? Indeed, there is special grace that we can expect in those moments. What is it that Jesus says? He says, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. What a comfort. What a comfort. In those moments, God doesn't desert us. In those moments, God is with us. And not just close, although that is huge, but ready to help. Ready to help, ready to give you words. Maybe you know this. Maybe you, you've been on a spot. Well, I mean, I've, I've been in this spot a number of times where someone just chucks a hard question. Oh, you're a Christian. What do you think of, of this? And it's a very public environment. And maybe you, in that moment, you're like, I'm usually rubbish. When someone just throws a hard question, I'm rubbish thinking on my feet. And yet in that moment, it's like a Bible verse that you last read like three years ago and haven't thought since, just kind of clonks into your head. You're like, I have it. I, I have the answer. I, I, know, I know what to say. I'm regardless of whether the response will be good or bad, God is with me. God is here and God is helping me. There's a grace that we can expect in the moment. And the more we know of the grace, the less we fear. I just want to speak for a moment to, to those in the room, and as, as there are every Sunday, those here who, who, don't, who don't know Jesus. Who wouldn't, you wouldn't say this morning that you are a follower of him. You haven't given your life 
to him. I, I guess you're looking in on the faith. You're just checking things out. I know what you've heard this morning is probably the worst sales pitch for Christianity <laughs> there's ever been. And that's all right. We don't really do, we don't really do sales pitches here because we just want to be honest with you about what, it is, what, what, what Jesus says following him is like. I'm not going to add anything to Jesus' words. I'm not going to ignore anything. I'm just going to tell you what he says. Because he's God and I'm not. I don't think you needed me to say that, but he's God, I'm not. And you, and you might be asking, why, why did the disciples, upon hearing this, there's a lot that Jesus says here, why did they not just bail? Why did they not just go, well, <laughs> thanks for everything, Jesus, we're, we're gone. Who in their right mind would sign up to this? What's being described here is not a comfortable life. The reason is this. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Okay? The, the Apostle Paul, a man who knew a lot about opposition, knew a lot about persecution, he writes to the church in Corinth and gives the reason why it is that Christians do not lose heart. And he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal here's what's different about the Christian we believe that Jesus rose from the dead And that changes everything. That changes everything because everything we look at, everything we see, we see through eternal eyes. So Paul can say, so the Christian can say, the the afflictions of this life in the grand scheme of things, in the eternal scheme of things, are light and they are momentary. Paul knows suffering. And when, and when Paul describes the pain in this life as light and momentary, he's not belittling, he's not making a small thing out of the suffering. He's not saying, oh, it's not a big deal, really. No, what he's saying that whatever cost there is now, and it might be enormous compared with what is to come, it is nothing. It is light, and it is momentary. He wants us to be assured that what is to come is so much better and so much greater. That there is an eternity coming. It's unseen right now where pain and persecution are finished with. Even death itself dies when all the pain in this sorry world is swallowed up in victory and everything is made new. And the unseen one that we look to more than Anything else is Jesus. And one day we will see him, we will see him face to face, and we will know in that moment when we behold his glory, when we see the scars that he has suffered for us, we will know that he has all been worth it. That in comparison to Jesus, it was light and it was all momentary. Because we have him. And knowing him forever is so worth it. And if you, if you don't know Jesus yet, everything that Jesus is welcoming you into that we've read about in Mark 13, Jesus has already, we've got to know this, he has already done that for you. 
We can just go through them. Dragged before councils and synagogues. Jesus was. Standed before governors and kings. Jesus did. Betrayed by brothers and friends. Hated by all. Jesus was. Put to death. Yes. Yes, Jesus was put to death for you. That is why Jesus is worth it. That's why we say Jesus is worth it. That's why we stand and lift our hands and sing because Jesus is worth it. He has already given his perfect life so that we who deserve death might know perfect life and know his eternal glory forever. So if you're someone who you haven't made that decision to follow Jesus, you haven't asked him for forgiveness, you haven't surrendered your life to him, don't you want to? Don't you want to? Isn't he worth it? Isn't he worth the pain in this life? Yes, it's a painful road. But what Jesus welcomes you to, it's so much better. It's so much better. You know, I just want to finish with this, for, for, especially for the Christians in the room. I just want to finish with what Jesus says right at the end. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. What a comfort. Will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. We can often think, can't we, that salvation is this past tense thing. Because Jesus says, doesn't he, if, if, you, if you believe and are baptized, you will, you will be saved. And so we think, yes, I've done that. I was saved. I know salvation. Like a past tense thing. It's true. It's true. And we can often think uh, maybe of salvation as a present tense thing. You know, the Bible talks about us standing in the gospel. Salvation working for us. And I think uh, we were saved. We, we are being saved today. But do you, do you know there is a, there's a future salvation? That there is a salvation we can expect. There is a future grace we can expect. The one who endures to the end will be saved. What a, what a, what a marvelous, marvelous promise. That we are, in, in a sense, we are surrounded by God's grace. Surrounded by his goodness. What a marvelous God we have. That he would welcome us into his family. That he would, as Rich was saying earlier, make us temples he would come and dwell so closely even though there's pain even though there's suffering all for the mission of god that he welcomes us into what a marvelous god we have we're going to take communion together because we are going to remember where all this hope comes from and it comes from the cross it comes from jesus dying for us so we're going to go as we sing this next song. We're going to go to the tables. If you know this salvation, if you know the salvation that follows you, that is with you right now and is waiting for you when you wake up tomorrow, I just want to welcome you to come to the table. I want to welcome you to take the bread, which represents Jesus' body broken for you, to take the, the, the wine, the grape juice, representing the blood of Jesus shed for you so that you may enter this new covenant, this new promise of fellowship with God forever. And if, you, if you're in the room and you, you don't know Jesus like that, you, don't, you haven't tasted of Jesus' salvation in that same way, I just ask that you would you just watch, you just observe, think, think about the things that you've heard this morning. And, and if you're at that place where you're thinking, actually, yes, I want this. It's the worst sales pitch in the world, but I, I've got to have him. 
Something in me is saying, Jesus is worth all of that. I just want you at the end, to, at the end of the service just to come and find me. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you. But for now, could, would, you, would you stand with me? I just want to pray for us. Oh, Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for what you have done, that you, you have won for us such a, such a hope that it makes even, even the suffering of this life look light and momentary. God, only you can do that. Only, only a, a holy, powerful God like you can do that. Lord, we, we worship you. We say, Jesus, you, you are worth it. Mm. You are worth it. For what you have done, for, for who you are and, who, and for what you always will be, Lord, you are magnificent. Mm. And we praise you. Amen.